It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rivals. People competing with another for the same objective or superiority in the same field of activity. Fantastic rivalry. It was intense. A lot of passion showed in it. I think the game that both teams look forward to every season. When you're the number one side in the world, everyone's going to play their best game against you. It's one thing being the hunter, but when you're the hunted, you're there to be shot at. Both chasing the same goals and dreams. I remember feeling really sorry for him. I knew I was going to beat him. I think there was needle between the teams, but just through wanting to beat each other so badly. You know, there was a mutual respect. I could be the laughing stock of this game. What if he scores four goals? What if he runs right? Each fighting against the other. I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. I thought, wow, is it really that serious? When you're suffering and someone's better than you on the day and you're doing everything you possibly can to hold on to, to them and not let that gap get any bigger than a metre and you're praying for the end to come or you're praying for the next corner so you can rest a little bit, they're the hardest days. You are invincible and it's just every day is a wonderful day. And look at all the others, they're, all, they're the ones that are all struggling <laughs> and they all hate you. Anyway, oh fatty, I forgot to tell you, I'm going to take the corner just be able to know it. It's okay, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and the other crowd laughed and like, I was that petrified, I didn't even move, I was waiting for him. In this series, we bring together famous sporting rivals to hear a shared story from both sides. The triumph, the tragedies, the victories, the near misses, the laughter and the sorrow. This is Reunited on TalkSport. In this episode, we look back at some of the highlights of the series in the company of Seb Coe and Steve Cram, Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis, Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan, Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, Richard Johnson and A.P. McCoy, Graham Sharp and Steve McMahon, Andy Cole and David Seaman, Paul Gascoigne, and Vinnie Jones. So sit back and enjoy the best of Reunited on TalkSport. Rivalry makes sport what it is. Players or teams battling it out for supremacy. But it affects individuals in different ways. Six-time world snooker champion Steve Davis was very clear on how he originally viewed his younger rival, Stephen Hendry. He was the biggest thorn in my side, and I didn't really like Stephen. Yeah, I, I didn't know him, but I didn't like him. <laughs> Why would I like him? He's, got, he's nicked my sweet box. Um, so we didn't really talk and, much. And also, you know? also, I was about 10 years younger. Yeah, than so you weren't necessarily... Didn't have much in yeah, common, really, no, did we? No, but he, he was just that, you know, he was just, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want, to, I, I, I don't want him to win. 
I'm hoping he fails all the time. I want his confidence to be busted so it makes my job easier. So every time he wins on the, you know, and I'm not involved in the final stages and I'm watching the television, I'm not watching the television because I don't want to watch him winning all the time. And, and that's sort of a fascinating thing. I don't know how you then viewed when the next, you know, when Ronnie O'Sullivan came along, but I absolutely hated you. Not because, of, not, not for any other reason mm. other than the fact you were the reason why I wasn't dominant. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's I... fascinating. You know, and then all of a sudden, as the years go on, you realise you're the same animal. And then you start to become... You've got, you've got so much more in common, a bit like two politician prime ministers mm. who hate each other, but then further down the line, they're like best mates in another way. And, it, and, that, and you realise that you, you've both been through the same ringer. I, I loved it. I love being the best player in the world. Obviously, you know, the, the, it's, you don't actually... I think when you're in the middle of a match... Um, you know, you don't think, oh my, this is great fun. I don't. You, you never stop and think, oh, this is a, this. Is, well, I didn't anyway. But you, it's just you're just there in the moment. You're mm. doing it. This is your job. But I mean, I, I loved being the best player in the world. I mean, there was just no no better feeling. And I loved the fact of everyone talking about you're the one man to beat. I mean, you go to the tournament, you're the favourite. Is you go to Sheffield? Obviously, it was the same for you in the eighties. Me in the nineties. Is, is it going to be Stevens' year again? Is it's it going to be Steve's you. year again? It's all yeah, about yeah. you. Yeah. And then and then. Constantly, when you get to the end and they're not talking about you, that's when it hurts. That, that hurt me. Well, when you no yeah. longer become the favourite, you're not talked about as, as a winner. I only felt pressure once, uh, once I wasn't the world number one. When, mm. uh, so the 90s was when all of a sudden I was under pressure. And that's when I started to try to work out what I wasn't doing that I'd done before. And that's when you try too hard. And the moment you try too hard, you're finished. Mm. because you've got to play with confidence and play freely. And then the next minute, you, you basically got a, a lead weight on your arm. So there's no pressure when you're winning. When, you're, when you've got that bubble of superiority, you are invincible and it's just every day is a wonderful day. And look at all the others, they're, all, they're the ones that are all <laughs> struggling and they all hate you and you don't mind them hating you because actually, or they resent you, you don't mind it. No. They, they'll be friendly, but they secretly resent you. And the next minute from being the one that they'll resent, then you're in the same, you're in the same boat and you're resenting somebody else. It's great. There's, there's no better feeling than going to the table just knowing that the other guy can't beat you. I mean, it's just, just a lovely feeling. You just go there and you just think, you just, it doesn't matter. Even if I play rubbish, you just know they can't beat you. And that's that. you have that superiority, you have that fear factor over the other players. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's the best feeling in the world as, as, a, as a sportsman. It's fantastic on occasions. Uh, you'd be playing a player in a round and you'd see them in the morning checking out of the hotel <laughs> that's a nice feeling when Terry, Terry Griffiths used to uh, the ones abroad he used to bring his suitcase to the venue just in case because yeah. he didn't want to be there <laughs> straight to the airport Steve Davis might have hated Stephen Hendry but for Paul Gascoigne it was more about fear in 1988 Gazza came up against a certain Vinnie Jones during a match between Wimbledon and Newcastle the game would become famous for that photo. But for the man from Newcastle, it was less about playing football and more about just surviving 90 minutes. Vinny and Gaza take up the story. Got to the game at Wimbledon. Everything's fine, having the crack with the lads, this, that and the other, and it's all going off out on the pitch. Gaza's gone out there early and there's a frenzy. And, there's, and some of our lads are out there. And I used to go out late. I didn't want a great big warm-up. Our lads are going out and they're going, there's girls running on the... This isn't a warm-up, you know, half an hour before the game, running on with bouquets of flowers and roses and chocolates and everything else. And something snapped in me. And I thought I could be the laughing stock of this game. 
what if he scores four goals? What if he runs right? And s- something snapped in me. And it, and it, the whole, you know that feeling when you're sort of sitting there and you go, and that's what happened. So I never went out. I stretched in the dressing room. I didn't want to go out. And I'm building up now. I'm building up and building up. And I never went out. I thought when I see him, I just want to kill him. I'm just going to, I just want to smash him. I want to get him in the, on the way out. I want to have it on the way out in the, in the tunnel on the way out for sure, 100%. So the, the, I always remember when he kicked up, he comes straight up to us. I went, you brought the ball. He says, I ain't playing today and neither are you. Yeah, I, I remember like, that. Uh, I remember that now, yeah. yeah I, I, I said, you've got the ball. He went, I ain't playing football, with you? I need that you. And I was like, you know one of them things we're going to... I don't, I don't want to play. It's OK. <laughs> but I always remember that. Cause what was embarrassing is, like, because the ground was small, and he says, oh, fatty, I'm going to take this to the It's right there. I said it loud, didn't Yeah, I? oh, God. And the other crowd laughed. And, like, I was that petrified. I didn't even move. I was waiting for him. And then I, I don't know remember, but during the game... I'm thinking, to be fair, I'm thinking, God, he's, he's OK, but he's not slapped as an offer. Whatever, he's OK, he's just having a banter with us. And then you had a corner, and oh, anyway, oh, fatty, I forgot to tell you, I'm going to take the corner just well, and I went, it's OK, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> but I always think, you know, when you're, watching it, when you're playing a game and you're tired, and you ask the referee how long to go, and you say, oh, two minutes left, I ask the referee after two minutes how long to go. <laughs> and we all know what happened next. So I just thought, because we were close, and then I grabbed him, and it was just spot on. I mean, it weren't no friddling about him. Yeah, he, had, he, had a, he had a bit of luncheon on him, the boy, to be fair. So, um, yeah, it was straight on the button, and then I just grabbed him, and I didn't let go. I was too raised, you know. When people say, yeah, you know, I did really, I nearly lost my family allowance. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, as he's... You weren't fat either, was you? Yeah, you were pretty lean, weren't yeah. you? But as, as Vinny says, that, um, that picture there, but there's another six. So yeah. you imagine how long you had. It's like, well, I went good anyway, yeah. But it was a proper squeal, like, you know. Um, it did well grabbing him first time, though. <laughs> For Vinny and Gaza, that match 30 years ago became a part of footballing history. Thanks to an eagle-eyed photographer and a former hod carrier looking to take man-to-man marking to another level. But for others who took part in Reunited, some matches were life-changing. For every winner, there is a loser. Here, George Gregan and Lawrence Delalio reflect on the 2003 Rugby World Cup final. Yeah, everyone was gutted, like, but everyone was emotionally, physically just spent. We'd given everything, heart and soul, and... You, you, we left everything on the pitch. And that's all you can ask of your team, to be fair. Like, in a, particularly in a World Cup final, they beat us in our own backyard and we can be proud of the effort. It was something along those lines. And we just, we, we enjoyed each other's company, had a few beers, took a while to get, get showered and changed. And it's funny, I'll, I'll, I haven't shared this with many people, but we played in 2001, the Lions series, a similar, same same arena, game three. See, Jono's captain of the Lions. And um, I'm coming out of the change room after the final, and I think he's just probably finished his presser. We bump into each other, and it was almost like deja vu from two years ago. I said, mate, you're in the winning change room this time. How's it feel? <laughs> he had a big smile on his face. Winning the World Cup final, it felt like it was climbing Everest. Just to be in that changing room, lots of different emotions, some guys crying, some guys laughing, some guys just doing nothing because they're just exhausted. It was just about opening a bottle of beer and just looking at each other and just saying, well done, mate, you know, we've, we've delivered on our promise. And uh, I think that's what made it special because I knew that 
for those five or ten minutes when we were on our own as a group, and it wasn't just about the team, it was about the the team behind the team, if you like, all the other players who weren't lucky enough to be on the field but were a massive part of what we did. It was about the support team, the coaches, the the medics, the you know, just everyone involved because it really was a huge effort. And just for that moment on, our lives individually and collectively were never going to be the same again. And just to have that moment as a group and know that we'd achieved something was pretty special. I think we we recognise that England aren't supposed to win finals, you know, that we've won one in football in 1966, you know, so I think we recognised that we had an opportunity to change that and and write our names in history. But obviously, if we hadn't, you know, I'd probably be in jail now, serving a life sentence for murdering the referee, you know. But at least George Gregan didn't have to spend too long in the company of the victorious England players. Spare a thought for former Everton striker Graham Sharp, who, along with the rest of the Everton team, had to share an open-top bus parade with Steve McMahon and his Liverpool teammates after the Reds had defeated the Blues in the 1986 FA Cup final. Liverpool won the double that year, the beats in the, the final. And if I remember right, was that the year that made us go back to I was just going to say, oh, was, whoever, oh. whoever organised this, shambles, oh. for, if you're an Everton player mm. uh, and involved with Everton, because they arranged for the plane to take us all back on a Sunday, both Everton and Liverpool, mm. both to, to, to stop off and do the, the, the trip around the city on the, on the open-top bus. How mm. embarrassing would that be? Mm. For, I don't think they'd cancelled the open-top oh. bus for Everton. But, and really didn't he make the trip. He said, oh, you know, really, mm. said, no chance of going mm. back on that and what have you. And rightly so. Because it, losing to your arse-rivals, Cup and League... And having to travel back with them when we're all mm. on the champagne and everything, Kelsey. Mm. It's heart wrenching. Mm. Heart wrenching. And I felt for them, really. Mm. Although we, we did have a laugh, you know, Sammy Lee's and that, mm. going in the airport, anything to declare, only a double. Yeah, well, we were the same. We couldn't believe it. And I think we had a, a do book for the Saturday night, so you can imagine that was miserable. But the last bit didn't add a few too many as you drown your sorrows. And then it was the morning, right? We're going back. Right, okay, we're going back and we're going back in the plane with Liverpool. We think, no, behave. No, no, you got one. Howard was adamant, you had to do it, you had to go back. So, really, when I'm not going back, I said, no way I'm going back on that. And he said, I'm not going back. So, he got fined uh, a week's wages, whatever it was. But we all had to go back on the plane, get off, and Steve says, go on the, the, the open top bus. Can you imagine how many Everton, fans, Everton players were on the top deck? There was there was nobody, everybody yeah. was downstairs hiding. It's the quickest open top bus yeah. in the world. It took about five minutes, yeah. I think. So, we were going through through Liverpool, and the, and the route was, you know, come down Queen's Drive, which is the main carries we mm. into into Liverpool if you like to the grounds uh, so we're going down there and listen the lads are downstairs they're not upstairs they're downstairs having a few beers and everything else so I guess this stage where I'm desperate I'm desperate mm. for the so toilet desperate in those days there wasn't any toilets on the bus so I'm thinking so some of the lads are using like the empty cans and all that I can't do that so it came to a halt the procession so I thought I need to go off so I jumped off the bus and this woman was in a garden and I ran up and said, excuse me, do you mind if I use your toilet? She went, yeah, no no problem. So she went in the house and it was upstairs at the top of the landing. So I've ran up the stairs. As I've come out, all the other lads have followed me and they're all queuing on the stairs. So as I've run down, her husband is in the front room watching the television of Liverpool coming back with the cup. He's a Liverpool fan. And he saw, 
they've stopped outside my house. So he's kind of walked out to see what the stuff were. And he said, he, he, he did, he did. Yeah. And all the lads were on the stairs and he said, get out, get out of my house, I'm a red kind of thing. So they all get kicked out of his house. But just, that was a little <clears> bit a relief for us kind of thing because that was the worst couple of hours ever. Steve McMahon and Graham Sharp reliving a bus journey that, it's fair to say, one enjoyed more than the other. You're listening to the best of Reunited on TalkSport. Still to come. You know, after you've looked up what you're riding or what you're where you're going, or you start thinking, what's he riding today? You know, so, and that is that is the way I thought. That was my mindset pretty much for, for, for the next 18, 19 years. Well, one day I'm coming out from training and I finally go, I, I can't go to the pub today, I can't go to the pub today. And I come up to the roundabout and it was left to the pub and right to the house. And I was fighting with the steering wheel and the pub won. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the best of Reunited on TalkSport. And we're looking back at the shared careers of some of Britain's biggest sports stars. While sport can offer fame, riches, success and acclaim, it can also have a darker side. One thing that all elite sportsmen and women have to deal with is the shadow of injury. Jump jockeys AP McCoy and Richard Johnson were born winners, driven by ambition and the desire for victory. But they were also fully aware of the risks in their sport. There's no walks of life where people go to work with two ambulances behind them. We both saw colleagues being fatally injured and, and suffer horrific life-changing injuries. So we know how dangerous it is. I can have five falls next week and literally jump straight back up. And then you can have one fall and looks like an easy fall and you land awkwardly. And then, yeah, unfortunately, you can break something or just the how you land. And I think it is. I, I think they, they reckon it's roughly one in 20 rides, one in 15 to 20 rides, you, you're going to fall. So, you know, roughly I have a thousand rides a year that's roughly 50 falls a year. So it's a case of, you know, you, you hope that you'll bounce, <laughs> bounce the right way rather than the wrong way. 
you know, I think in life and in sport and maybe in business or whatever it is, I think you need someone who challenges and someone who drives you. I, I got to the point after three or four years thinking, do you know what, if I beat Richard Johnson, I'll beat everyone else. So you become, I wouldn't say as engrossed in him as you do yourself, but you 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 start, you know, after you've looked up what you're riding or what you're where you're going, or you start thinking, what's he riding today? You know, so, and that is that is the way I thought. That was my mindset pretty much for, for, for the next 18, 19 years. That thrill you get when you win, whether it's a, a big race on a Saturday or a small race on a Monday, it, that adrenaline rush or that thrill or that buzz you get from riding a winner is, you know, that, that's all I think about really on a daily basis. It's not just physical injury that can hamper or even end careers. There is also the mental and psychological strain that can affect sports stars, both during and after their careers. For both Vinnie Jones and Paul Gascoigne, the pressure of sport led to well-publicised battles with booze. I spoke to him on the phone last Friday. Mm. talking, But, you know, it came for me after that, like twins thing, you know. I would get a sense when he wasn't well, kind of thing. He, you don't know this. Mm. But I'd get, a, I'd, get a, I'd get a feeling. I'd say to my missus, I'm not sure, you know, better check on Gaz and look it up. And a few times, you know, he, he wouldn't be well or something, you know, be battling against the disease or whatever, you know. Mm. And it, would, it, it affects me. You know, and whether that's like a... Because of what happened, how close it was, I do carry this twin brother thing around with me, for sure. Mm. You know, I really do. Listen, I'm five and a half years sober, so I can understand it a lot more. I can understand the demons of what it is, everything else. Um, and so when when people are cheap with it and dismiss it, like, oh, he's doing this, I'm very defensive, obviously. You know, A, because of the disease they don't understand, and B, because it's him, mm. you know? And and it's it, it's not, why don't he just give it up, or why don't it... That is not what it is, you know? And, and other people need educating as well before he can. You know, he's into his goal, fly fishing. Exactly the same as me. We've got the same interests like that. It takes you away from all that. And sometimes, for me, what will happen is your friends change. People you think are your best friends, they're not. They're your best drinking friends. They're your best drinking associates. You come out and then, you know, these people move on. And you, <coughs> what I've done in five and a half years, which, you know, please God will happen to you when you get, keep getting that time bigger mm. and bigger, friends will become less, um, different things will become more important, mm. you know. And, and like me... We're very much the same way as life and soul of the party, always having to tell the jokes, get everything going and all that. What I've learned is let someone else do it. Let someone else tell the jokes. Mm. Let someone else be the joker. And it's quite hard because you're born, it's born and bred with you. But being sober for me is, has helped me take a back foot, you know. Mm. I love me golf. I go out early and I play golf. Sometimes I play 36, seven days a week. You know, or I take the fly rod out, or I take the rifle out, or whatever. You know, and and I definitely felt that I needed. I was crappy at golf. I was, cra- you know, uh, I'm, I'm a six handicap now. I was crappy when I was drinking. Six handicap, no way. Yeah, hey. yeah I took it serious and I got into it. Wow. And I was never into the golf when I was playing. I was never yeah, into I was the, the same, golf. I never played. I always wanted to be mucking about. You know, me and Wisey would be causing havoc somewhere. You know, not into the golf at all. It gave me a it gave me a different perspective, you know. Instead of 
that urge. And I remember one day I'm coming open training and I finally go, I, I can't go to the pub today, I can't go to the pub today. And I come up to the roundabout and it was left to the pub and right to the house. And I was fighting with the steering wheel and the pub won, you know. <laughs> and you do because it's, and it's a social thing. I think, I think where we're similar is we could have both been in the army, you know, we could have both been in a regiment. We could, we need blokes around it. We're that kind of, you know, blokes. I think we, we like blokes around it. We love blokes company. We love the crack. Um, and I think sometimes that, that can enhance the, the social drinking side of it in this country, especially. You know, going to the pub. Mm. I mean, I just love going to the pub, playing cards all afternoon and, you know, and, and our pub used to be carpet fitters, cab drivers and that, so they'd be in there at two o'clock. <laughs> and for me, that was fantastic. Play cars and boom, you know. And is that what you think? So, it, you know, it is, a, it is a case of... You do, like, you think this is a later, and it really isn't really, to be fair, you know, we forget about ourselves. There's such more, and people, you know, and people say to me, or did at the beginning, your life will get better, your life will get better. And you go, yeah, yeah, all right. And I, I swear to God, my life has gone from being pretty good this to, you know, I, mm. I run a $30 million film fund now. A guy has trusted me with $30 million of his money to run his film funding, no. uh, money. These have all come without the booze, yeah, exactly, you know, yeah. and you throw yourself into something else. And I just feel the further you get from it, from day one, mm. whether it's day five or day 55, mm. or year five and a half years, the longest you get from it, all that happens is you start you start despising it and you Easy think, well, why didn't I do that when I was 40? Or why don't, mm. you know, because your life does get better, for sure. Um, I was the same. People used to say to me, oh, do you know where such and such lives? And I used to say, is there a pub near there? Name the pub. And I named the pub, yeah. Well, if you go along there, it's all right. You'll probably just live during that. I've been sort of through what Gaz is going through, or been, you know, and uh, so he can understand that I've been there. It's mm. not like I'm saying don't suck eggs. I'm going, I've been there and this is how I dealt with it. Now, it ain't mm. the same for everybody. We don't all deal with it the same. I find the harder I, the harder I work, the less trouble I get in kind of thing, you know? Mm. You know, Idlands, you know, create, and I sort of keep that going. So I, I try and keep busy. And whether it's, whether it's up past six, teeing off in the morning, I'm out there with the golf boys. I'm out there. They're all drinking and I'm, very comfortable with it, you know. I'll have me tea, boom, no problem. I'm comfortable in that environment. I feel I can give advice mm. and say, look, this is how I did it. It doesn't mean that that's the, that's the secret for him, because it's it, this is the biggest challenge of his life. You know, every every day is a monumental day. Um, and say that six months is hard. I, I found, for me, I found like the first three weekends was murder because you have you have to kind of get out mm. of a routine and your mates want you out and you try and get out of it. First three weekends was really hard. Then the first three months, then the first six months and then you then you sort of start feeling good about yourself. And I think once you get the pride back in yourself, you you're on you're on the downhill slope then you can you you, you start going a bit quicker, you know. Mm. I mean to have the silliness of what he's talking about it's like when he first said it and see how proud he is. It's like, I'm five and a half years. And I'm like, I'm, it's like, for me, it's like, wow, it's incredible. It really is, you know. But I speak to people and they say to me, I'm 27 years, I'm 35 years. You know, this guy said to me, 
which, you know, sort of, sort of changed my life, really. He said to me, Vinny, because I, I, I'm like him, I have a joke about it. They said, why did you give up drinking? I said, well, my lawyer retired, you know, and that's the best advice <laughs> he ever gave me. He said, I'm retiring, you better give up the booze. But a guy said to me, he said, he's 37 years sober, and he said to me, something you haven't grasped, Vinny. I said, what's that? And he said, drinking is a young man's sport. And really it mm. is. You know, like football, as a young man, we know, we know when we get to 35, we're going to have to look into management or something like that. Mm. You know, and the drinking and that, for me, you've got to grow up. You've got to take responsibilities. You've got to get a business or something, you know? And them words to me were quite strong. He said, mm. it's a young man's sport. And when you look at it, I think too hard to figure out. We had a brilliant time on it when we were younger. Yeah, exactly, you know. You know? And now for, that, that got it for me. I enjoyed that. I, you know, that was good advice for me. Yeah, I mean, when I first went, I think it was Chief 28, and I'd done it about five years, and I was, he's right, and, was, and then you you think you've got it, and obviously sometimes you can only take the littlest, littlest thing, you know? Little thing, or the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah you know, a big charity, you know, a big, a, a big problem mm. in your life, you know, he's had with his dad and everything. I mean, that's hard enough. Mm. Sober or not sober to deal with someone like that. I mean, you know how passionate he is about his family. Mm. You know, I just we, feel like sometimes, like, your, your ego has to get smashed, you know, now and again. Regards myself, like, you know. And then sometimes when I was doing well, the press saying good things, but you start believe, reading what you're reading, you know. Well, the thing, I mean, with that, I've got... Guy Ritchie was, um, gave me a, an advice about that, about the ego. He, he, he said... If you, we've all got an ego, so we've all got a dog, right? Mm. And you got your dog. And he, and he said, unfortunately, Vin, yours is one of the biggest bloody dogs I've ever seen on somebody. You know, he's talking about the ego, you know, with getting into trouble and stuff. So he said, you have to keep your ego in the kennel, the dog. You have to keep that dog in the kennel, <laughs> That's good. you know? So when I'm drinking and playing up, he's taken over me. He's like, go on, you can do this, you can do that. That geezer's looking at you. You're not going to stand for that, are you? But when I'm not, like now, for five and a half years, he's been in the kennel. He ha I haven't yeah. let him out. Yeah. And every time he pokes his nose out, I kick it. <laughs> I kick him back in the kennel, do yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. And that's, all that is part, that is part of not wanting to be the joker in the group. Not, mm. you know, let someone else do it. You know, that's, that comes with all that. But the, keeping the dog in the kennel for me is my one priority when I wake up in the morning. Mm. I make sure he is in the back of that kennel. And any time through the week, there might be something that happens. If he's got his nose out, I smash it back in there. <laughs> Kick him as hard as I can, straight back in the back of the kennel. Yeah, and we have a great day, because I've he don't want to come out for two or three days. He knows I'm in charge, you yeah. know? And that's, how, that, that's how I deal with it. Your ego mm. is, is your dog, and, and he's got a mm. massive dog. His dog's massive, mm. you know? And it needs a lot more control. His dog needs a lot more control than probably than mine. Vinnie Jones and Paul Gascoigne candidly discussing how pressure and ego can affect not just their performance on the pitch, but their health beyond sport. Pressure can affect players in different ways. While preparing for the 2003 Rugby World Cup final, Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan felt relatively relaxed. But for others, the weight of expectation was a nightmare. The lead-up to a World Cup final is huge. We were based up in Coffs Harbour, so what that enabled us to do was sort of beat a lot of that hype. 
and that international media came, I think it may have been on the Wednesday. I think that was the big media day. But uh, we had a few photos taken of the team when we did our recovery session. I didn't like these recovery sessions involved trying to get on a surfboard in the uh, ocean. And if you're ever surfing around Australia, the easternmost part of Australia has got a lot of sharks. So <laughs> I wanted to play in a World Cup final, not be a statistic on a shark attack. So I pretty much stayed out of the water as much as I could and observed. Yeah, it was very relaxed, wasn't it, in the uh, in that yeah. week? And I think that was part of the battle for us is when you're preparing for effectively the biggest game of your life and you're just trying to treat it as a as another test match, you know, but it's not. It's the World Cup final. Outside the hotel is like this party atmosphere, holiday atmosphere, lots of fans, but there's some serious business to be had at the end of the week. And I think that's probably where the experience counts. I think, you know, for me, it wasn't my first game for England. It was the final was my 65th cap. And, and for many of the team, as the Australian press kept telling us, we were we were pretty old. Um, so that experience really helped in the, in the preparations because there's not a lot that's going to make you a better rugby player between Monday and Saturday of, of a World Cup final week. It's just really in the mind and just trying to relax and prepare for the game and and not overthink it too much and just stay calm and, and do the normal things that you do. But not every England player was as relaxed as Lawrence Delalio. Johnny Wilkinson, you know, bless him, you felt like he had the world on his shoulders because he probably did, you know, playing 5-8 for England and... He was just at a different stage in his international career, different stage in his career. He had a lot of pressure. And I remember walking down the beach with my wife, not far from Manly, we said, come on, let's go out for lunch and just to you know, have a bit of rest. And walking in the other direction was Johnny Wilkinson in, in full disguise. I mean, literally, he had pretty much a balaclava on and you wouldn't have recognised it was him because he just didn't want to be seen, didn't want to be noticed by anyone. And uh, I thought to myself, God, poor guy, he's, he's getting ready for the final and he just looks so intense. And I almost felt for him, really, because uh, he had a, obviously felt the, the, the weight of expectation on his shoulders. But, um, hey, he came through in the end. Still to come on the best of Reunited on TalkSport. It was one of them, like, when it hit it so hard, you know, like, my reactions were, like, nowhere near quick yeah. enough for the ball. I always fondly remember to standing on the start line of the London Olympics. That was really cool. Next to your brother, not many people get to do that. There are years in your career where you are just in a purple patch and you step out onto the track and you basically know you're not going to lose. You're listening to the best of Reunited on TalkSport where we relive the careers of some of sport's biggest rivals. Of course, sport is all about winning. The moment of victory. A time when all the training and hard work comes off. Very few of us will taste the sweetness of being the best on the track, pitch or field. But for the few, there is nothing better. Andy Cole was lucky enough to witness one of the most perfect goals scored in the history of the FA Cup. David Seaman also had a front row seat. And I remember our, our semi-final battle with you. Oh. And we were so close to changing your history. <laughs> and it was. I, I always say now, whatever you're going to win, you always need that little bit of luck. Yeah. You always need that or bit skill. of luck. Yeah. It was and a good save. I even turn around and say, I didn't even play the second leg. I never played it. Cause yeah. I picked up a knock and the gaffer put me in the stand and said, no, because we got the semis coming up uh, against Juventus. The best game I've ever watched. I'm in the stand, I'm watching my team play. It's the best game I've ever yeah. watched. And when Peter Schmeichel makes a penalty save, you got a chance. Yeah. Because you don't see penalties. Especially at that stage as yeah. well. Because if we score that, you're, you're 10 men. Yeah. Been 10 men for a while. You know, we, 
more or less go on and, and, and take it. In stoppage time, down goes Barla. David Ellery gives Arsenal the penalty. Would you believe it? Well, I thought it was a penalty. I think Phil Neville knows it. There's not one complaint from a Manchester United player. Brilliant from Parler. He drives at him. You can have no arguments. Camp will take it and three of his last five penalties for Arsenal have been saved. Two international greats here and a decisive moment in an FA Cup semi-final replay. Bergkamp and Schmeichel. And Schmeichel has saved it! What a hero for Manchester United! It was, it was another one of those ones, another Juventus night. Men possess, you know, to lose uh, Roy, you know, we knew Roy, the way he played on the edge every single game, yeah. there's a possibility of, of mm. losing him. But we always knew when he was on that pitch, what he'll give you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he's more yeah. than enough. Yeah. So when we lost him, he was like, we got, obviously, we got all man up. Yeah. And like I said, Schmeitz making that save and then Giggsy making that. Oh. Yeah, you're on about over Mars making a run from the halfway and nobody dared take him out. This was like, that's what we were. I was thinking somebody kick him. It's the easiest thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at it now, everyone keeps backing off, backing yeah. off. I'm saying to myself, imagine if someone just advanced him and tried to like, just yeah. take him out, but everyone backed off, backed off. And then he got into the area and I'm like, don't kick him, don't kick him. <laughs> and then, and then he the just smashed it like so hard. Like, yeah, no chance. I, I was moving for the ball coming out. <laughs> I mean, it was one of them like when he hit it so hard you know like my reactions were like nowhere near quick yeah. enough for the ball yeah it already got you know, past, and it had yeah. gone like right above my head you know I'd gone a little bit low because I thought he was going to go low yeah if I'm honest and he just just launched it straight over and yeah, no chance a rather weary one from Vieira Diggs gets past Vieira past Dixon who uh, comes back at him it's a wonderful run from Diggs Bad hair chest. Oh yeah, yeah, bad, bad hair chest. I, I, I think um, gigs you realise now. But you, you, know, you know when you're one of those ones, yeah, you're ten men, and yeah. you know we we having a good guy at it. But to score goal like that, he's just saying, so oh. what exactly am I going to do? What, oh, no. what are my celebrations? Yeah. Skip's been sent off. You know, Schmeitz has made a penalty save, and I've scored a wonder goal. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done. You know, and I now Man United sing a song about Patrick Vieira about giving yeah. gigs the ball. And Arsenal won all. Yeah, I remember the, the punters running on the pitch and celebrating. His, yeah. Oh, it was, it was a special, special evening. But yeah. I mean, two Titanic games, yeah. two semis. Yeah, definitely. For David Seaman and Andy Cole, witnessing that special goal by Ryan Giggs brought very contrasting emotions. They were fierce rivals on opposing teams. One went on to the FA Cup final at Wembley. The other watched it on TV at home. For triathletes Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, the emotional cocktail provided by sport is even more complicated. They are rivals, but also brothers. So when they both lined up for the 2012 Olympic final in London, it was more than just your average race. I think I remember most minutes of, of that day from waking up in the morning. 
to going down the hotel to, to, to go in and checking our bikes in. And the, the way we entered Hyde Park or the triathlon course, there was actually very little crowd because you came in the back entrance and I was thinking, this whole day's a little bit of disappointment, really. There's, you know, I thought the crowd was going to be amazing. And then we went on our warm-up loop on the bike course and it was unbelievable. The first time we heard the noise, it was like, no, I've never heard anything like it or really you know, since it. Um, it was incredible, an incredible race. It was incredible to be part of. I think I always fondly remember to standing on the start line of the London Olympics. That was really cool. Next to you, brother, not many people get to do that, to know that we've stood there and then been able to, uh, with all that pressure and all that expectation, and the fact that both of us want to win and, and beat each other, to stand there and just be able to have a joke before the, the biggest couple of hours of your life, I think is pretty fantastic. However, for Johnny, the 2012 race would not go as planned. He was hit with a 15-second time penalty for mounting his bike a fraction too early. Alistair was the first to notice. Yeah, I knew before Johnny did. I'm a bit more aware, I think, and um, I, I think I picked up on the first lap and I was actually trying to tell him, but the noise was so loud that I was, like, yelling at him, you've got a penalty, and it didn't... I don't think... I think it wait, we had to wait till there was, like, a quiet bit on the course and it got through to him and then he maybe saw it on the board or something. I can't, anyway, I can't remember. Um, and, yeah, I told him he got a penalty. I don't think I, he didn't actually tell me I got. I remember reading the board that I'd got a penalty, and my first reaction was, "Oh no, I don't want to lose out Olympic medal because of one silly area like that." And then I think what else he said to me, "Just calm down and, and just race your race." Normally, you can talk a bit. It, it's quite hard because you're obviously moving fast, uh, and by the time you're running, you can't really talk because you're breathing too hard. Mm. Uh, but on the bike, you know, you can talk about little things, but at the same time, you want to be kind of quite calm and, and not be like too aggressive about it. But London, because the crowds were just phenomenal, we'll never race a triathlon like that ever again. Um, you know, most of the six or seven K lap, it was just yelling, which was brilliant. Uh, and then there was a small part across Serpentine Bridge in Hyde Park that people couldn't stand on for some reason. And, you know, when you flew over there for five or six seconds, you had a chance to yell at each other, and that was it. It didn't affect Alice's tactics, whatever he did. But then, in the end, it's one of actually how proud I am. One of the proudest moments in, in my career is how I dealt with that. A lot of people would have fallen apart there and gone, this big day you've trained for, now you've, you've wasted it. But the way it worked, a group of three of us got away very quickly and I had a more than a 15 second buffer and I took the penalty. But my Alice just said basically, calm down and relax and there's nothing to do about it now. I remember feeling really sorry for him. It didn't factor in my race at all because I knew I was going to beat him, so I was just like, I was a bit worried about Gomez potentially, but uh, I knew I was absolutely flying for him, and it, it was just, yeah, I, it was my race to lose on that day, which doesn't happen very, you know, I don't say that a lot about racing in sport, I'm not really that really necessarily overconfident person, but that day I was just absolutely sure. It's happened two or three times ever, and thankfully it happened on that day. I was like, right, no, I've got to yeah, push on to try and win this, I don't think. 5K into the run, I'm thinking, Oh, at least I've got a medal now. Maybe that's at the back of my mind, and then I'm quickly thinking, well, wait a minute, how, how can you actually win this? Well, I didn't think I was going to get the bronze medal, really, until the last 200 metres when I ran down the finishing straight, thinking, I've done it. Uh, that was my first reaction, I've done it. It's something I've always wanted to achieve, something I've trained hard for for years. And you were when you set off that lap, lap, last lap, you were still a 10 second lead. No. You were worried about getting caught. Mm. So, yeah, I'm running down there, and then I think, wow, I've done it. Uh, I know how quickly races can change in triathlon. It's hard to explain emotion in a situation. My, I really wanted to, first I wanted to really get to the finish line because you're really, really tired. And then it kind of came around and it didn't really feel real, if anything. 
Um, there were times, definitely in the evening so afterwards, I had to go home and check the medal to actually make sure it happened, and, it, and I didn't. And I never one of these athletes would believe that. When I heard other athletes say that, I thought, oh, it's just it's rubbish. Um, but I remember, yeah, just never thinking it actually really happened. Like the Brownlee brothers, winning medals at major championships is something Steve Cram and Seb Coe know all about. But for these two middle distance greats, it was more than just about titles. They wanted a place in the record books. There are years in your career where you are just in a purple patch and you step out onto the track and you basically know you're not going to lose. And for me, that season actually was 1981 where, you know, I'd come out of 1980, you know, the, the sort of pressure cooker of the games. And I just remember saying to myself, I'm just going to have some fun this year. I'm going to race places I want to race. And I think that was, 1985 was your season. Yeah, you same just, thing. You just weren't going to be beaten. I remember watching, we're doing this interview here in, in Monaco, well, you know, 20 miles up the road, you had that magnificent race with Saida broke the world record, um, and then no excuses at all. You know, I went to the Golden Mile in, in Oslo and you destroyed us. You were off and I just <laughs> I watched the gap opening <laughs> as, you, as you sort of went down the back straight and by 200 metres, I thought, well, it's, it's, it's game over. And they come around with 200 to go and Cram is testing Cole and the world champion, the European champion. The Commonwealth champion, the world record holder at 1,500 metres, majestically comes striding away. This time, is it to crack the world record? Yes, it is. 3.46.3. Gonzalez second, go third, Scott four. Yeah, and, and as Seb said, if without without any championships, like he had an 81, it is a bit about, I wonder how fast I can go. You know, mm. there's, there's a bit of that. So I did run 800,000 metres, 1,500 the mile. You know, it's, I, it is one of my regrets that that year I didn't focus a little bit more on the 1,500 and the mile because I think that 1,500 in Nice, which was in early July, late June, early July, yeah. I didn't really run another serious one all year. You know, I kind of got wrapped up in doing other things, 2,000 yeah. metres and... Yeah. Yeah. and, and when you're in those purple patches, the, later on in your career, you think, oh, I wonder how fast I really could have gone. Because mm. even, even the racing, it was a great race against Saida but it wasn't set up for me or Saida. It had actually been set up for Wacom Cruz, who went out the back door after about 1,100 metres. And we ran kind of a 53 last lap together. And probably if you wanted to run as fast as you could, we would have set it up a bit differently. Oh, and, you could and, have yeah. probably so, gone out. There was at least another second and a so half in there. But hey, you know, you, you, but you're right. Eighty-five is one of those years where you know I had a few little niggly things. But you just every time you put your foot on the track, it's about it was more about how fast can I run. I wasn't having to worry about tactics. It was just let's just try and push this. Steve Cram and Seb Coe reminiscing about the golden age of British middle distance running. You've been listening to Reunited, a tongue-tied media production for Talksport. You can download the full series featuring A.P. McCoy and Richard Johnson, Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, Andy Cole and David Seaman, Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan, Seb Coe and Steve Cram, Graham Sharp and Steve McMahon, Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis, Vinnie Jones and Paul Gascoigne from the TalkSport website or via your usual podcast provider. Series 2 of Reunited will be back in 2019.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.